We have some awesome news coming to us all the way from Livingstone, Zambia. As of July 2022, the first phase of their building is complete and they have services each Saturday for children where they've been able to see approximately 500 kids every single Saturday. Adult church services have also begun. And to say thank you, these people learned a phrase in English for Sagebrush Church. Take a look at this. From Dango, we to you. Thank you, Sagebrush Church. In addition, there are three brand new church facilities under construction in India. Soon, these already existing church families will have a permanent place to meet. Cambodia is also celebrating three new church facilities. They're working hard to supply safe and permanent churches to these people. In Northwest Africa, many children and adults gathered together to thank us for our help. Check this out. Hello? Hello? How are you? How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Trailhead. Trailhead. And Sagebrush Church. For our new church. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Sagebrush Church, for your outpouring of love upon these communities all around the world. Without you, this isn't possible. Thank you for being faithful followers of Jesus and making it your priority to spread the gospel to his people near and far. If you have the desire to be a part of someone's story, it's not too late. Visit m1.sagebrush.church or the Sagebrush app to find out more about the M1 Capital Campaign today. For those of you who are new, the M1 Capital Campaign was something we started earlier this year. We uh, pledged over $3 million to help 59 churches all around the world. 51 of those 59 projects are already happening. Several of them are already in completion. We promised that we would give you updates along the way. Remember this, every dollar you give to M1 does not stay here. It immediately goes overseas to fund these works. And you can see the smiles on these people's faces. 500 kids coming to that one particular church. Well, that's amazing to be a part of something like that. That is so great, so great. Well, we are in the middle of a series called Troublemaker, and today we're going to talk about the miracles of Jesus. Last week we talked about the teaching of Jesus. This week we're going to talk about the miracles of Jesus. I remember years ago when I would walk into the house and my daughter's rooms were clean and their beds were made, I would raise my hands to the heavens and I would say, it's a miracle. I remember when we get the credit card bill, and I found out that my wife had spent less money on the credit card than she did the month before. I'd raise my hands, and I would say, it's a miracle. One day, when the Dallas Cowboys return to the Super Bowl, if that day ever occurs again, I promise you I will say, it's a miracle. And then I will look outside to see if Jesus has returned. Because I'm certain that that has to be an end time prophecy when the cowboys ride high once again. It will be a miracle. When I come to my front door after a long day at work and my wife is there to greet me with a hug and a kiss. She says, dinner's on the table, ESPN is on the TV, and your lazy boy is calling your name. I will pass out. In that moment, and when I come to, I will say, it's a miracle. 
I bet there have been times in your life when under your breath or maybe out loud you said, it's a miracle. Maybe it was your child's high school graduation. <laughs> you didn't say it out loud because you didn't want to damage your child's cub spirit, but you thought to yourself, that kid graduating right there's a miracle, right? Or maybe the first time you laid eyes on your son or your daughter and you saw the handiwork of God and you said, that's a miracle. Uh, maybe it was after your child was in a car wreck. My, my kids have been in way too many car wrecks and way too many car wrecks that were their fault. To be honest with you, it's just not a good thing. But you pull up on the scene when your child has called you and told you they've gotten to a wreck and then you see a car like that. That was Hannah's wreck and then we've got Mackenzie's wreck and they walk away and they're unscathed and they're unhurt you will walk away and you will shake your head and you'll say a prayer to God of thanksgiving and you will say that is an absolute miracle miracles come all the time don't they when the prodigal son or daughter returns it's a miracle when a marriage is restored it's a miracle when a person through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, breaks free from an addiction that has held them captive for years, it is a miracle. When an atheist realizes there is a God that loved them so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross and rise again from the dead, friends, that is a miracle. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at this. I was an atheist for a majority of my life. And October of 2015 rolls around and my husband and I have been arguing, things had gotten really tough. And I'm in the kitchen and he comes barreling in and he looked at me and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't love you anymore and I think we're over. And that moment I felt like my heart had been ripped out. And I fell, I fell hard. It wasn't so much the loss of the love, it was the failure. Like this was something I thought I could do, but I failed. And I thought, man, if I fail a marriage, I can't do anything. And so I waited till he left. I had put the girls to bed. And in our bedroom, we have this very tall gun safe. And I knew that if I was gonna do it this time, I was gonna do it right. I was, I was, I, I didn't wanna stay here anymore. And so I held it up to my head. And uh, I, I had a moment of pause. The idea of God was a hard concept for me. My grandmother always told me, you know, he loves you, he's there. I said, you know what, fine. God, if you're there, if you're a real thing, if you exist, give me a reason to stay here. Because I don't see it. And I remember just sitting there for a moment. It's completely silent in my house. The smallest of whimpers, I heard mama coming from a bedroom. And it was my baby, it was my youngest daughter, Addison. She was maybe six months at the time, so barely learning how to talk. And it was the first time she'd ever said that phrase to me. It was the first time she'd ever just woken up without screaming and yelling and throwing a fit. And that's all she said was, Mama. I threw the gun in the safe and he, he'd answered me. And he told me, you know, you have two tiny humans in that room. That should be all that matters. And it was in that moment that, looking back, that was miraculous. That was just one moment where God was like, hey, I'm here, I'm real. And then a friend of mine was like, have you checked out Sagebrush? Looked it up online, she goes, hey, look, they start in 15 minutes, why don't you go? I'm like, do you see what I'm dressed in? I'm in my pajamas, and nobody there cared. And so I sat in the same seat, 
religiously every Sunday for several months until it got closer to the year mark. And I, I fell back into a deep, dark hole again. I got, I got depressed again and I stopped going. But it turned out the campus pastor, Vince, was finding me. He, he didn't see me in my seat. And he said, hey, I haven't seen you in your seat. Where have you been? He goes, well, I hope to see you on Sunday. And that simple act of kindness, just striving to just find me, the one of the 99. And I stuck through Sagebrush ever since. I ended up getting involved in Remix. I got to see so many kids give their life to Christ that it just, it moved me to get more involved. And I, shortly after that, I got baptized. I, I was able to be new. I was able to start fresh and, and my life began. And it was through Sagebrush and through Christ that I, I learned to go to CNM to get my teaching license, which in a million years, I would have never thought to become a teacher. And I think the biggest thing for me and that solidified where I'm at is I had a little girl this year come to me and tell me if it weren't for me, if it weren't for my story, my testimony, she would have never given her life to Christ. That solidified where I was. That's when God told me, this is where I want you. This is what you're supposed to do. Jesus does the miracle business, isn't he? And he still does miracles to this day. And we read in the scriptures all the different miracles that he did. And it set him in a class all by himself, didn't it? When was the last time you went to the beach and there's some guy walking on the water out there? You, you've never seen that before, have you? When, when's the last time you were at a wedding and, the, and someone turned water in, into wine? You, you, you've never seen that as well. When, when's the last time you were out on, on a boat and all of a sudden the fish just started jumping into your boat, hundreds of them at a time? You, you just don't see these kinds of things. When's the last time you heard about someone bringing someone back to life again after they had been dead for four days? That's just not something that you hear about. And yet Jesus did all of those things. And it was this miracles that brought people to follow him. I mean, we go from town to town and people would find out that Jesus had the power to heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, and the lame. And they would just come thousands at a time hoping for the healing hand and the healing touch of Jesus. One of my favorite stories of Jesus healing someone is found in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus encounters a man who has leprosy. The Bible says in verse 12, while Jesus is in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, now Luke is a doctor and so he wants to make certain that you understand this guy doesn't have a small amount of leprosy on one arm. He is completely covered with leprosy from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Let me give you a brief understanding of how leprosy would begin. You would start to feel soreness. You would start to feel fatigue. Your joints would start to hurt. And then you would start to see patches and nodules on your skin. And they would begin to grow and they would begin to ulcerate. And then they would open up. The wounds would open up and I'm told that the stench is incredible. Eventually it would cover your extremities and your fingers and your toes would go numb. In leper colonies where lepers were sent to, many times they'll sleep during the night and the rats will come in and gnaw away their fingers and their toes, their nose. They don't even feel it and the next day those, those, things, those things are gone. Eventually the leprosy will enter into your throat. It'll ulcerate the person's vocal cords so they'll either lose their voice or they'll be hoarse. Eventually, it will go up into your brain stem, cause you to go into a coma, and eventually you'll die. Now, at the very first sign of leprosy, you were supposed to go down and show yourself to the priest. 
And if the priest determined that you were, in fact, had leprosy, you had to leave immediately. And you had to go to the outskirts of town where there was a leper colony where other people were waiting to die. No longer would you feel the warm embrace of your spouse. No longer would you see your kids ever again. And so you would be banished from society. You would lose everything in an instance. And if you decided to go beyond the boundaries of the leper colony, out back into the real world, everywhere you went, you had to shout, unclean, unclean. And if you got too close to someone, it was lawful for them to kill you. It was lawful for them to pelt you, to throw stones at you. Because in the first century, people who contracted leprosy were seen as someone who was cursed by God. The reason the bad thing had happened to you is you had done something so heinous and so sinful that God had cursed you as a result. That's what people believed back then. And the Pharisees would say, don't have anything to do with a leper. Because now are they cursed by God. But if you touch a leper, you become unclean yourself. So there's a leper covered with leprosy from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He comes up to Jesus one day and look at what he says. When he, the leper, saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He does not doubt for a second that Jesus can do it. He just wants to know if Jesus wants to. Because in his mind, he's too far gone. He must have done something somewhere along the way that God can't stand him. And since Jesus is God's son, listen, I know you can have mercy upon me. I know you can have grace upon me. But everybody around town says I'm cursed by God. So I'm not sure you even want me. I'm not even sure that you even care about me. And this hurts my heart so much because there's so many people inside the church, outside the church, that feel the same way when it comes to their relationship with God. And they think they're too far gone, they've messed up too much, that God doesn't want anything to do with them. Oh, they know God can do great things. They just don't believe that God wants to do great things in and through them. Well, if that's you today, I want you to hear what Jesus does. Because he does something that's absolutely amazing. The Bible says that Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. He said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, I love it because maybe you missed it. It says that Jesus touched him. And how long has it been since somebody touched this guy? When he felt the warm embrace of somebody else. And the Pharisees taught, boy, if you touch somebody who's got leprosy, you become unclean too. What's Jesus doing? He's entering into that leper's world. He touches him as if to say, you're not in this alone. We're in this together and we will get through this together. Now, now some of Jesus' miracles were spontaneous. Somebody would come up and they would ask for a healing and Jesus many times would heal that person. But some of Jesus' miracles were planned and there was a reason for the miracle behind it. For example, you might know the story of when Jesus was at a wedding party and they ran out of wine, right? 
Jesus is at a wedding party. They run out of wine. Obviously, this must be one of Mary's relatives. She's very concerned. Someone goes up to her and says, hey, we ran out of wine. Is there anything you can do? It's a great embarrassment to a family to run out of wine. And so she runs over to Jesus. She says, hey, can you do something about this? We don't have enough wine. We need more wine. We need more wine. And Jesus says, hey, it's not my time yet. And she says to the servants around, she says, just do whatever he says. Just do whatever he says. So look at what the Bible says. John chapter 2, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus had the servants, and they filled up the jars with water to the brim. And guess what? The water turned into wine, and it was the best wine they had ever tasted before. So what's the point of the miracle? What's the point of the story? When the wine runs out, run to Jesus. Is that the point that we're looking for right now? Because some of you are like, I hope so, man. I really hope so right now. That'd be awesome. No, that, that's not the point. Joy was what wine was all about. When you had wine, you brought joy to the party. And they had run out of joy. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, well, I'm going to give you joy like you've never experienced it before. Do you remember the angels when Jesus was born that day? They came out and they said, I come to bring you great news, good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So what, what's the joy that Jesus brings? Jesus is saying, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. I've come to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was given to show us how sinful that we were. So Jesus says, I've come to set you free. I've come to bring joy to your life. You realize that the, the jars that were used here were ceremonial jars used for washing. Let me explain this. There were huge jars, and people would come to the tabernacle, let's say, or to the temple, and they would wash in these jars. And so the water was absolutely filthy. They would cleanse themselves on the outside, but there wasn't anything they could do to cleanse themselves on the inside. So Jesus says, you know what? I, I, I've come to take away the, uh, the old way of doing religion. Where it was all about do's and don'ts. Now it's about a real relationship with the real God who really does love you. And I'm going to show you the extent of my love by dying on the cross for your sins. And I'm going to rise again from the dead. So we're doing away with the old because the old is being fulfilled. For behold, the new has come. No longer do you need to be burdened with guilt. And regret over all the things that you've done in your past. I've come that you may have joy like never before. And when Jesus brings joy to a party, he brings joy to a party. Because we're talking about six ceremonial jars. Each contain 20 to 30 gallons. So we're talking about 180 gallons of wine. Have you ever been to a wedding where they tried to consume 180 gallons of wine? Some of you are like, I'd like to maybe take that a shot. You know, we want to try that out. That might be why you've never been invited to a wedding after that. You know what I'm saying right now? Here's what Jesus is saying. You can't exhaust the grace of God. 
You can't exhaust the grace of God. It's so deep and so wide and so long and so high that there's absolutely no end to it. It was Jesus' way of saying, I've come to bring joy to this world. Let me give you another one. John chapter 6. Jesus is going to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, he's in, he's in Israel. He's in the mountainsides. And all these people have gathered together to hear what Jesus has to say. And they've been there all day, and they're hungry. You know the story. And so Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says, listen, go, go find them something to eat. And so this has got to be the dumbest, most ridiculous thing that Jesus has ever asked these guys to do. I mean, this is ridiculous. How are you going to find something to eat for 5,000 men, not counting women and children? Most scholars estimate there's 15,000 people there on this particular day. Can you imagine Jesus coming to you and going, go find them something to eat? And you're like, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. And one of the disciples gets the calculator out and says, listen, eight months' wages wouldn't even give every person just a single bite. Well, they keep looking around, thinking this is absolutely insane. They don't even have a grocery store around there. You know what I mean? And if they had a grocery store, there's not enough in Jesus' treasury to take care of what needs to be taken care of. Well, one of the disciples finds a little boy. He's got five loaves of bread and two little fish. And what I love about the little boy is his faith. Because he gives everything that he's got over to Jesus. Because he believes that Jesus can do something significant with the little bit that he's got. Friends, if there's one principle I want you to get today is this. Little is much in the hands of God. Let me say that again. Little is much in the hands of God. My goodness, just a little bit of dirt. And what can God do? He can create a human being. Put a rod, a shepherd's rod, in the hands of Moses... Something so small and insignificant as this. And God can use it in Moses' hands to part the Red Sea. Put a slingshot, a children's toy, in the hands of David through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the giants will be torn down. This is what the kid has to offer. It's a couple of sardines. And these loaves of bread, to be honest with you, are about twice the size of what the normal loaf of bread would be. So when you say he's got five loaves of bread and two fish, you're thinking he's got... No, he's got enough for a couple of fish sandwiches. That's all he's got. But in the hands of Jesus, it feeds 15,000 people. I don't know if you understand this fully. I don't know if I understand this fully, but we, we don't have much to offer God, do we? I mean, not, not a one of us has got a whole lot. I mean, what talent do you have that God doesn't have? And yet he wants to use you. And how he uses you is you give over the little bit that you've got. You give the little bit of time that you've got, because it's not a lot of time, is it? And you give that little bit of treasure that you've got over to him and say, God, you bless it and you use it any way that you see fit. God, you use whatever you want in my life any way you want because in my hands it's going to be limited. It's going to have minimal impact. But in your hands, it can do great things. It can impact thousands and you can take it. You can bless it. You can break it. And you can multiply it. And you can meet needs. And that's what, exactly what Jesus does in the story, right? He takes the bread, he, he breaks it, he blesses it, he passes it out, and everybody is fed. And then afterwards he says to the disciples, gather the leftovers. It seems like a strange request. Who wants to gather leftovers? 
They begin to gather leftovers around. What do they find out? They collect 12 baskets full, don't they? Why is that significant? How many tribes were there that made up the nation of Israel? It was 12. It was Jesus' way of saying, I've come not only to meet the physical needs of my people, but also the spiritual needs of my people as well. Now, that's pretty cool. But it gets even cooler because you know, if you've read the Bible, that this isn't the only time that Jesus feeds a large crowd of people. There's another time in Scripture where Jesus feeds the 4,000. And what makes that uh, event so significant is where it takes place. You see, it happens on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a place called the Decapolis. This was the seven nations of Canaan. And no self-respecting Jew would ever get onto a boat and travel over to the other side. This is where pagan worship was. This is where idolatry was. My goodness, these people worship pigs, which is the most unclean animal for a Jewish person. In the mind of the Jewish person, they saw the other side as the place where Satan lived. No self-respecting rabbi would ever be caught dead on the other side. One day, Jesus says to his disciples, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. They don't want to go. To the other side. And wouldn't you know it, as they're going across the way, there's a storm that blows up. And the disciples are all like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You go to the side of Satan right now, I tell you what, you'll get some storms coming against you. And that's when Jesus said, peace be still and calm the storm. And then almost immediately, they're on the other side. But they're not greeted by a great crowd of people. No, they're greeted by one person. They come among the tombs. And the one person that they're greeted by comes running down the side of the hill naked as a jaybird, man. And he's out of his mind because he's possessed by evil spirits. And when Jesus asks him what his name is, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Do you remember the story? Jesus cast the evil spirits out of the man. He put them into a herd of pigs. They ran down the side of the hill, and they jumped into the water, and they all died. I always make the joke, that's the first case of swine flu that ever was, right? That's what I always say. Jesus was showing his power and his authority to those pagan religions that they worshiped those pigs. And do you remember what happened? The people in the town came out, and they said, you got to get out of here, Jesus. We don't want your kind around here. And here's the interesting thing about Jesus. He won't stick around where he's not wanted. You don't want to welcome him in? That's fine. He'll just go. If that's what you want, and if that's what you decide to do for all of your life, well, one day when you stand before him and says, hey, you didn't want anything to do with me on this earth, just go. I've got a place where I'm not. And it's called hell. And that's where you'll go. Because if you don't want anything to do with me, I won't have anything to do with you. I won't force myself upon you. So Jesus gets back in the boat to go back to, you know, his side. And that demon-possessed man who's now in his right mind, he says, can I go with you? And Jesus said, no. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell everybody on the other side what I've done for you. Well, some time passes by, right? And Jesus goes back to the other side. And this time when he comes back to the other side, there's 4,000 men, not counting women and children, who are there to greet Jesus. So here, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What happened? 
Why is there 4,000 people, just men, not counting women and children, why are there that many waiting for Jesus to come? To, how did they know? There's only one answer. That man did his job, didn't he? He told everybody about Jesus. And he said, come and see the one who made me whole again. And boy, they came. And so Jesus is teaching them, and day one comes and goes, and then Jesus continues to teach them, and day two comes and goes, and now it's day three, and they're still out there listening to the teachings of Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? But here's what's interesting. They didn't have any food either. They didn't have anything to eat. So the question is, is why does Jesus wait till the evening time to feed the Israelite people and wait three days to feed the Canaanite people? He was testing the disciples. He wanted to see if the disciples would say, you know what, Jesus, these people have been here for three days. And they are absolutely famished. We need to provide for them. We need to give them some food. But after three days, not a single disciple comes forward and says anything like that. You see, I think Jesus looked in the eyes of his disciples and realized how disgusted he was by the other side. I think in their minds they thought, you know what, these people can just stay here all they want. And they can die of starvation because I don't think Jesus would give them anything. Because these people aren't worth nothing. And I think Jesus was a little bit upset with them, don't you? Look at what the Bible says here. Mark chapter 8, verse 2. Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. So what's Jesus do? He does another miracle and he takes some food that they have there and he blesses it and he breaks it and everybody is fed as a result. And then afterwards he says to his disciples, collect the leftovers in baskets. How many baskets did they collect? Seven. Why is that significant? Well, the Decapolis is the seven nations of Canaan. It was Jesus' way of saying, you know, I've come for the Jew but I've come for the Gentile too. I've come for everybody. And I think he probably looked at his disciples and said, gentlemen, you have a list of who's worthy of the kingdom of God and who's not worthy of the kingdom of God, who you're disgusted by and who you're not. I want your list. I want you to tear up your list because in heaven there's going to be a great banquet table of God where every nation and every tribe Every people group will be represented. So if there's racism inside you, there's prejudice inside you, you have some group of people that you don't like because of the color of their skin, get rid of your list. And let the love of God so seep through you that you love people the same way that God has loved you. Isn't that awesome? Jesus, all of his miracles... His miracles had a point. When, when Jesus walked on water and calmed a storm, why did he do it? To show his power over nature and creation. When, when Jesus cast out evil spirits, he was showing that he is the king of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. When Jesus raised people back to life again, he was showing that he is the author and the creator of life. John chapter 11. Interesting miracle. Jesus hears that a friend of his by the name of Lazarus is sick. But rather than coming immediately to take care of his friend's needs, he allows Lazarus to die. And he knows that Lazarus has died. 
He shows up a few days late. In fact, Lazarus has been dead now for four days. And when he shows up, Martha comes out to greet him. And Martha was a very prim and proper kind of a person. And Jesus says, well, show me the place where you have laid him. And she showed him the place, and there's a stone at the entrance of the place where Lazarus' body was laid. And Jesus said, Martha, I want you to have the people roll the stone away. And Martha's so prim and so proper, she says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not a good idea. It's been four days. Decomposition has set in. It's going to stink, you understand. I don't think that's a good idea to open that up. Now, the four-day thing is there for a reason. Do you know why? There was an ancient myth that when somebody died, that the spirit of the person would hang around for three days. But after three days, the body would decompose so greatly that the spirit would be like, I ain't getting back in that. And then it would take off for the afterlife. That's, that's what they believe. So here we have Lazarus who's been dead now for four days. What's the point? Lazarus is stinking dead. Do you understand? That's what the point is. Well, Jesus says this amazing phrase. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then with the stone rolled away, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the next thing you know, Lazarus' spirit that was up in heaven, having a great time with Abraham and Moses and David, all of a sudden, whoop, he's back here again like this is a drag, you know. And he walks out, he goes, are you kidding me right now? I got to die again. I got to go through this again. Friends, I honestly believe if Jesus wasn't specific in that graveyard, if he'd have just said come forth, everybody would have risen again from the dead on that day. Lazarus, come forth. Now, some of you are sitting here, some of you are at home, and you're thinking to yourself, Todd, those are just good made-up stories. I mean, come on. We don't really believe these things to be true. I mean, we don't have any evidence that those things actually happen. Are you sure about that? You know, there are other writers that wrote in this time period about the life of Jesus that aren't in the biblical text or the biblical sources. For example, there was an old, uh, uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian of the first century. This is what he said about Jesus. He said, Jesus was a man who performed startling feats. And the Jewish Talmud confirms that Jesus performed some sort of supernatural deeds. Look at what it says. It says, on the eve of the Passover, they hanged, crucified Jesus the Nazarene because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. Now, even though this account is, is negative, it shows that even his opponents didn't try to deny that Jesus did the miraculous. And these miracles happened in front of hundreds, even thousands of people. And no one walked around saying, that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. So I'm going to ask you again. How many times have you been to a beach and you saw somebody walk on the water? How many times you've been on a fishing expedition and hundreds of fish just jump right in? When's the last time you were at a wedding and the water you were drinking turned into wine? When's the last time you saw someone rise again from the dead after being dead and buried for four days? 
You've never seen it. There's only one. His name is Jesus. And he is the King of Kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are amazing. And you have shown us one miracle after another in our own life. Not only the miracles we read about in the Old and New Testament, but my goodness, the miracles that you've accomplished in our life when we pray for something or pray for you to intervene. And at just the right moment, at just the right time, you do the miraculous. Lord, how can we ever doubt you? How can our faith ever waver? For you are God Almighty, and nothing's too hard for you. So I pray that would give us great confidence. Lord, that that would give us a steadiness in our spirit. That we would have a faithfulness to you. That no matter what is going on around us, that you are the calm in the midst of our storm. Lord, that you will come to us and you will rescue us and you will strengthen us to be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, give us faith to push through our fear to push through our worries and push through our anxiety and our stress and to trust you because you are trustworthy. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.